0: Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman.
1: Welcome. Welcome back. We're really excited. Uh, I'm Jennifer White. I'm here with Ellen Trackman. Hi. Say hi, Ellen. Uh, so, Ellen, what is, since it's fall and we're starting to finally hopefully get to the point where things are a little cooler, what is one of your favorite smells? Oh, that sounded
0: leading. Is it my favorite sorry. smells or my favorite was, fall smells? Was that? No, I'm sorry. I was awesome.
1: leading because I know what my answer is, and uh, it was related to fall. So it. sorry. I, I did not mean
0: to lead the question. You're <laughs> correct. Uh, what is your favorite smell? It's okay. Open it up. Wide okay. open. Well, I will say generally it would be like that smell after it rains where it's like very like fresh clean smell. Maybe it's the grass. I don't know. Um, but fall specifically, oh, when like people start lighting their fire, like lighting their, um, their chimneys, like that's always like a fun smell too. How about you? It's a, it's a pumpkin spice latte, isn't it?
1: Oh, God. Anybody <laughs> who knows me knows how much I hate pumpkin spice. <laughs> sorry. Sorry to make some people angry, but I just don't love it. Uh, no. So uh, in general, I think one of my favorite smells is uh, newborn baby heads. Uh, love, love, love that smell. Um, and then for fall, is that uh, why you do this? Just to have an excuse to smell newborn um, newborn baby heads. I I do love to sniff. They're baby probably heads, easier so. ways, like <laughs> make you nurse. Like there's
0: other career options. that might work better.
1: Uh, yeah, but I get I get the deepest satisfaction if I get one of my favorite things every time. Right, so. Um, and then the other one is the smell of uh, roasting green chilies. Uh, that is like the smell of home for me. So, Should
0: you disclose it's in the agency agreement that you get to sniff the the client's baby's head afterwards? Is that, no? Is that, we, should that? <laughs> we should add
1: that? We should add that. We should totally. I'm going to talk to my legal counsel and have uh, that added to our agency right. agreement. <laughs> that they must deliver the baby to me and I get to sniff the baby's head. You oh, wait. Five, no. five
0: sniffs. No
1: five sniffs. I don't have to touch the baby. And when I, things like now, when I have a cold, I'll stay as far away as possible. So we'll have a caveat for that. But uh, yeah, I, I I do love to sniff babies' heads. <laughs> uh, yeah. So
0: tell so, us about our guest today. I'm excited.
1: So we have Davina Fankhauser with us today. She is a huge advocate of also, we, since we're on an advocacy kick right now, of fertility benefits for people, which is really incredible. Um, She's been a a huge part of a lot of the legislation that has passed and really made some big impacts. And her story, her personal story, is just so wrenching. So really incredible. We can't wait to share it with you.
0: Welcome, Davina Fankhauser, president and co-founder of Fertility Within Reach. Davina, we're so happy to have you on
2: the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to participate
0: Hey, and you are such an amazing resource. So, what we, what our plan is, we'll talk about your personal story, and then go into all the amazing resources that Fertility Within Reach offers. Um, so, what, what brought you to this world? Tell us about your, your
2: background. Oh my gosh! Well, I became. Um, well, I. Oh, background. I became. <laughs> where uh, Where are you from? Sorry, where do you live? Um, right now, I live in the Greater Boston area uh, in Newton, Massachusetts. And I, l- I love living here. And my
1: mother-in-law I- lives in Newton.
2: <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I've lived all over the country and this is absolutely my favorite place to be and to, to try to raise a family. And I'm very, uh, I feel fortunate, um, to love where I live and love what I do. It, it's a, it's a great, Great life so far. So, thanks. And
0: (laughs) and did you always think that one day you'd be a fertility advocate when you grew up?
1: Is this, is this, was this your life goal? Yeah.
2: No, no. So I, what? it's funny. I started out as a political science major mm. and then realized I didn't have a poker face. Mm. So <laughs> then I became a, a, a communications major. And I also, I, I graduated with two bachelors and another one in psychology and I I ended up because uh, I was married very young at the age of 22. Um, we moved around the country a lot. He was not in the military. He was in retail, which is as unforgiving um, as the and- I, I've
1: I've had both in my life. I've been in <laughs> retail and married to a military member. And you're right. They are yes. both equally unforgiving. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, exactly. So we um, we didn't have insurance coverage for infertility. And I was actually diagnosed at 23 that I had um, endometriosis and that if we wanted to try to get pregnant, we needed to try right away. So literally within six months. And were you, were you thinking married, that that
0: was your plan to have kids pretty pretty early? No.
2: Oh. No. In fact, we went to Planned Parenthood to learn ways to avoid pregnancy (laughs) other than birth control pills because I was crazy on the hormones. So it's very ironic that we actually went to Planned Parenthood to learn how to not get pregnant. And then very quickly we were told, oh no, well, you should try. And so we did. We tried and it wasn't working. And then he had um, a semen analysis done, which showed that he also had a male factor oh, no. infertility issue. Combo. Yeah. Oh, it's like a double strike. Yeah. So we had a double whammy, didn't have insurance coverage. So basically, we completely withdrew from the economy and all of our money was saved for our health benefits, you know, because we wanted to have kids. So we didn't buy a new TV or a new car or a home. We didn't go out to dinner in a movie. Every penny was saved for this. Our vacations were camping trips, which I love, but you know, it it gets to the point of when your goal is to try to have kids and you are faced with this medical, you know, condition that's preventing it from happening. Um, you know, all your resources go there, and yeah, and so we moved around the country a lot. Um, never had insurance coverage through the employer, uh, and then in we moved to Massachusetts, and I decide at that point we had been married. Ten years, and I was like, you know what? It's not had you, happening. Had you tried
1: anything from med oh, from a medical question. perspective during that ten year time? Like would, yes,
2: okay. yes. Good question. So we had tried, um, clomid, clomiphene. Um, we had tried IUIs, uh, that so um, in utero insemination, and we tried that with medicated. And it, we just didn't have any luck. Then um, my husband had a varicocele repair done. And then for the first time, I became pregnant. Uh, but then I miscarried. And then I'd become pregnant a year later, and I'd miscarry. And I'd become pregnant a year later, and I'd miscarry. And the doctors were like, well, you are getting pregnant, and technically it's in a year So you're not considered infertile. Um, Oh, my
0: goodness. Oh, that's insulting. That's actually really insulting, right? Because you got pregnant, even though you couldn't successfully carry, you kept miscarrying. That didn't count. Wow. Correct. Yeah.
2: Yes. So for years, um, we went through this. And so eventually, we ended up moving to Massachusetts. And I was like, you know what? We've been married so long it's not gonna happen I just I'm gonna go back to school and I want to be a vet I want to become a veterinarian so we moved to Massachusetts and the school that I was attending they had a, a school health plan that I got on and they covered some infertility benefits Yay.
0: not even a lot, even without a diagnosis. Soft.
2: Even without a diagnosis. But by then, you know, I went to a doctor for an evaluation and they were like, you know what, it you're you are in need of treatment. So you you have a diagnosis. And I was like, okay, great. Because at that point it had been over a year since our last miscarriage. And um and it it didn't work. And I was devastated because I I had always been told what you guys need to do is do IVF and you'll get pregnant. And we did IVF and we and didn't how did get pregnant. how did the yeah, retrieval
0: it. and the, like, did you get a, a number of embryos from that? Or how, how was that part?
2: So I ended up getting, and I was 30, 30 at the time, um, 31 maybe. I had five oh, follicles five. And the average is like 15 to 25 or something, right? Yeah. It, it was not, it was not good. And, and then we ended up, that cycle, we had what's called a chemical pregnancy. So you start to have some pregnancy hormone in your system, but then it goes away, which means usually that implantation didn't take. So then we did another cycle um, and to me, I think IVF can be a bit addictive. You're like, well, next time. Right. The odds will be in our favor right. if we do it again, right? It's a, it, it. So I was like, well, we'll do it again. And so we did it again. Um, and this time with genetic testing. And um, we ended up with, again, five follicles. One genetically normal embryo resulted out of that. We transferred it, chemical pregnancy. And the doctor said, you know what? There was actually one blood test we didn't run. We missed it. So let's do that now. And so they did it and it turned out I had a blood clotting disorder. It was undiagnosed because that kind of diagnostic testing back then there was an insurance coverage for it. So I had this condition called a prothrombin gene, I still have it, prothrombin gene mutation where your blood clots a bit too much. Um, and so what was happening was something, my body thought something foreign was attacking it and it would clot off the blood supply. And so it wasn't allowing an embryo to implant. So did right? you
0: have to pay for that test so out of pocket since insurance doesn't cover that?
2: The insurance at that time did cover it. So, But I'm I saying our original miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage, those, yeah, those weren't tested for. The blood clotting disorders weren't tested for back then. In Massachusetts because I had some coverage, we were able to get that test and that's what they identified that. So um, he, my husband still had male factor infertility issues, even though he had his surgery and things were a little bit better. And then we knew when we did IVF that we needed to be on a blood thinner, right? So all of my pregnancies, I, I really couldn't get pregnant without a blood thinner. So what happened was we, did, we switched clinics because my husband just couldn't handle the fact that they missed something that cost us so much money. Um, and we went to a, a second clinic. We did IVF with PGD again. Um, and this time all of our normal embryos arrested Meaning they stopped developing, but the abnormal ones continued to grow. So it was very disheartening, um, and we ended up going with a third, uh, another clinic. Um, and I basically, when I met with the doctor I met with, I just sat down like it was I was interviewing him. You know, I was at the point of, are you the right doctor for me? Not not in the desperate mode of, please, doctor, help me get pregnant. I was in the mindset of, are you capable enough to get me pregnant? Right. <laughs> well, you're like, I no. have been there, done that so many times now
1: <laughs> that you're going to be the right, I'm going to find the right one. <laughs> right.
2: So I ended up with that. I loved him. I love my doctor. I still love my doctor. And it's always subjective to people, but he was perfect for me. And um, so I beca- I, we were doing the IVF cycle. And um, before we started the IVF cycle, I decided to try acupuncture, acupuncture and Chinese herbs. And I have to tell you, that made a huge difference for me because my menstrual cycles used to vary between days 28 and 42. And once I did acupuncture with the Chinese herbs, my cycles became 30 days, 30 days, 30 days, regular, 30 days, yeah, which was Shout
0: out for acupuncture, so the next- <laughs> at
2: least for some, right? Absolutely. Seriously. Um, it worked for me and, I, and I'm grateful for it because when i did my ivf cycle with this new doctor and i produced 7 or 9 follicles ended up with 7 embryos wow right wow. so i almost doubled my production right so it was amazing but we really ran out of money at this point so we decided not to do pgd again and we just transferred Wait, all the embryos
1: all? Oh, all, 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 seven? Oh, all seven. wow.
2: Holy
1: cow. Yeah.
2: Wait, what year was that? Is, is
0: actually, that okay? I
2: mean, it, I take it pre-Octomom. It right? was, it was, yes, it was. Yes, it was. And, but I just had this attitude of, they're not all going to take. I've, you know, I've done PGD. I only have this percentage of, you know, I have 50 to 75% are abnormal. Even if we transferred, you know, all these embryos, I'm not going to end at, up. At this point, they're doing multiples. something to treat your, blood, your clotting issue. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So, yes. So we had a protocol for that. And I, um, I became pregnant. Originally, it was twins, um, but I experienced what was called a vanishing twin. So one of them didn't continue to grow, and one did, and that was that's my daughter. But it was a high risk. I mean, that's pregnancy. amazing. At
0: seven, sure.
2: it, it really ended up being a single pregnancy. Right. right. Exactly. So after my daughter, I waited a year because I really wanted to breastfeed and I thought she might be my only one. So let me have this experience. And we did another IVF cycle and I only ended up with four that time, four embryos. And again, transferred them all, became pregnant with a singleton and miscarried. And we ended up um, doing uh, genetic testing. They did a DNC so they could do genetic testing to find out why did I miscarry. And it turned out it was a Down syndrome um, embryo with a genetic uh, mutation for Down syndrome. And uh, then we ended up doing another IVF cycle. again. Not, uh, oh, sorry. After the second IVF cycle, I no longer had the school health insurance plan. Um, we purchased a non-group plan, which meant um, that means it didn't have to go through an employer. But just for me to have the coverage, it was more than $500 a month. So it was extremely expensive, less than an IVF. But still not in our budget, right? So um, the, then the cycle that ends up being my son, again, nine follicles and seven embryos.
1: Huge shout out for acupuncture
0: here, right?
2: Right. <laughs> yeah. I continued to do it. And.
0: Uh, that just traumatizes me all. every time
2: you say that, that you're transferring to a high number. Yeah. Well, you know what? I just, the, and my doctor was like, you know, these are your risks. Are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, you know what? If I end up with multiples, I am open to doing a selective reduction. The thing is, I don't think I really knew what that meant. <laughs> um, so I ended up being pregnant with triplets. And they were freaking out. And I was just very much like, oh, don't worry. They're not They The going clinic to is freaking out? Is that- but, <laughs> uh, yeah, the clinic yeah. is freaking out.
1: Well, and They're since like, after you just had a vanishing twin experience, yeah. too, you're like, right. eh, hey, whatever. <laughs> <vanishing>. <laughs> They're going to go exactly. away, right?
2: <laughs> I, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. And then I just transferred four. And, you know, none of them, you know, were were leading to a live birth, so transferring seven again. I just wasn't worried about it. and um, But at 10 weeks, my cervix was starting to thin, and they were all still growing. So then we very quickly had consultations with high-risk um, obstetricians. And they two of them in Massachusetts Said uh, you you should do a selective reduction, and we went and saw a specialist who writes all wrote all the articles on this and did all the research on this. Um, we went to New York City and saw him, and he said you should do a selective reduction. I was devastated. I was devastated. Be I, I had so much going through my mind. Uh, you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have transferred them all. And, and then they could have had a chance to survive in a future cycle or, do you know what I mean? Like when all you want to do is have kids and then you're finally pregnant and then you're looking at, you know, doing genetic testing on them, which is, so it was triplet pregnancy. One of them didn't survive the CVS testing. Um, And so then I was with, so then I saw twins and the genetic testing came back normal for both of those. And the doctor said, um, I would still recommend reducing to one because your cervix is thinning and you're only at, by this time I was 12 weeks. And what
0: what do Um, they say the risk
2: is to the entire pregnancy for a reduction? Losing the pregnancy or. Giving birth at 24 weeks and then explaining what that kind of pregnancy would be like. So, the real challenge um, emotionally also was my husband didn't want to do a selective reduction. And everything in me said, we need to lose, we need to do this or we're going to lose them. And it was up to me because it's my body. It was awful. It was, it was the worst. I, we had always been a team when it came to our infertility. And and we weren't, we weren't, and it was terrible. Um, but we did the reduction. I couldn't choose the doctor. I I said please you choose and he said okay I'll I'll choose based on which one has the the best chance of survival given the location. I was like okay. Um and we ended up that that's a pregnancy with my son. Um despite the fact that I mean I was at the high risk OBGYN every week. I was going to counseling every week, marital counseling every week. Um And, uh, and then the rest of it was pretty much bed rest from 24 weeks on my water broke at 28 weeks. Still, right. So, and of course the NICU doctors were like, you're lucky you didn't have multiples. This would have been, they said this would have been a very different outcome if he had been any smaller. And of course, if he had shared with a twin, you know, they they both would have been so small. Anything that could go wrong did go wrong with him, but he he healed himself. He had a heart, a hole in his heart that closed. He had retinopathy prematurity that went to normal. Um, and I mean, he had a brain bleed and it stopped. Wow, so um, it's with the like with all of those kid. issues, wow right? And, and it's the risks, right? With the, with the preemies. And, um, I had, uh, actually the first time I saw him, I had a panic attack. I didn't realize that's what I was having. I thought it was from all the medication from the emergency delivery. And, uh, but it was, it was a panic attack because I'm looking at him so small and red and alarms going off and, the rate of his breathing and I'm thinking, I'm watching him die right in front of me, right? It was, so I used to say, uh, don't force a single embryo transfer on people. It should be between the patient and the doctor, right? That's what I used to say. I still believe it should be between the patient and the doctor. Not everybody fits into a cookie cutter, but I think not everybody realizes the reality you just don't think it will happen to you. And I have to say, I've had a lot of pain in my life. I've passed a kidney stone or tried to. Um, I, I uh, it gave birth. Um, but the emotional and physical pain that goes with a selective reduction, I had no idea. Not a clue. So now I'm like, you know what? Unless you are... You know, put your mind at the fact that you are pregnant with multiples and this could happen. If you're not prepared for that image or that reality, transfer a single embryo. You know, I just, I'm, I'm like, you, you just have to understand that it's a real risk. Um, and I just didn't get that when I was going through treatment because of my history, I just didn't think it even though my wonderful wonderful doctor warned me many 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 times since then the clinic no longer <laughs> allows uh the transfer of that uh those embryos actually after my situation they just they stopped doing that they they changed their policy and um which uh, you know was good call I guess uh, right Good call for them. You're a trailblazer in
1: so many ways, and that is uh, one of them, right?
2: <laughs> so, so, at first, I like I blamed myself, right? Because I made the choices. I, uh, we chose to transfer so many embryos. I made the choice to do the selective reduction. Did that cause him to be born early? I don't know. Was it something I did? I don't know. But what I do know is. I was really angry with myself at first. And then I became angry with the situation, with the circumstance. Because if I had insurance coverage, I would not have transferred that many, right? I would have felt comfortable knowing that if it doesn't work this time, I'll be able to afford to do it again. And I just felt as if this isn't right Um, And if it's happening to me, it's happening to other people, and I want to do everything in my power to not let that happen. So for a period of time, I worked for Resolve, the National Infertility Association, from 2004 to 2006. And then after I had my daughter in 2006, I became involved um, with the Uh, original Resolve, which was located in Massachusetts.
1: Which is now Resolve New England, right?
2: Right. Resolve New England. Exactly. And um, run by my dear friend, uh, and I call her my wonder twin, uh, Kate Weldon LeBlanc.
1: And and for Um, anybody who listens to us regularly, uh, we talked to her last week.
2: (laughs) Oh, awesome. She is the best. Yeah. So, love her. And anyway, um oh, what is my thought? So, you moved um, back to Massachusetts. Oh. She, so,
1: you talked to your Resolve. You're talking <laughs> about your path and where you started working. Yeah, Resolve <laughs> uh, yes. New England. Yeah. Oh,
2: okay. So, but but this was before Kate's time with Resolve New England. I was on their board of directors. And then I said, "Hey, let's have an advocacy committee." And so we had an advocacy committee, and then I was at the state house so much. I was like can we make this a paid position? <laughs> I created a budget and, and they secured funding and for a very small amount of money, I was advocating at the state house at least once a week, trying to update the definition of infertility. And I remember in this one meeting, a, a, a woman legislator said, you know, it takes an average of eight years to get a bill passed. And I, and I said, Just out of my mouth, not really thinking. I said, not if I have anything to do about it. I was just like, not happening. And um, it went to a study review, went back, kept lobbying, and it was passed in 2010. It became uh, a law, the updated definition. But I thought it was going to kill me. It was so hard. Doing it mostly on my own. I had some meetings with a few meetings with my um, fertility within reach co founder, um, Sandy O'Keefe. Um, there was another RE uh, or Resolve, new, um, it used to be called Resolve of the Bay State board member, uh, Lee Collins, and she had um, written this bill that I was lobbying for. And the thing is, it, it was exhausting and I was, I was, yes. And, and then I ended up with my son and then I was bringing my son with me to meetings. Um, sometimes my daughter, so I, I, I tell them that they're good luck, uh, <laughs> because it passed. Um, but it was just this crazy time. Um, and I thought I, I, want to make this easier for other people to do it, right? I was so lucky to get um, the alliances that I did and the collaboration with the different legislators and the tips and the support. And I felt like I learned so much. I knew that if other people had that information it would make it easier for them to do the same thing in right. their state. And had you had you
0: so, advocated or, you know, been trying to change laws before? Or this was like your first,
2: your first foray into how the system worked. This was my first. This was I the only other thing I did was in high school, I did a woman's march and I was part of model legislature, but never really tried anything in real life. Um, and, and, and it was a great experience. And people were like, oh, you must be so excited and proud. And I said, you know what? I'll be excited and proud when I meet the first baby born from this law. Right? That'll, and You know what? It turned out, and I didn't know this, it took, it, it took a while to determine this. A friend of mine actually benefited from the law. And so I knew that child, you know, for a while. And so then I was like, oh, my gosh, this is just so perfect. It it just made me so happy um, that I just felt that there was a purpose to the pain I had felt over the many, many years of trying to have kids. And uh, so I connected with um, Sandy O'Keefe. Because Resolve of the base state at the time said, "You know what? I think we're good. You know, legislative wise, advocacy wise." And I was like, "Because
1: their state had been taken care of, right?" (laughs)
2: Yeah, exactly. And I was like, "You know what? I I want to keep doing this." Um, And I was familiar with everything that Resolve had to offer, Resolve National, but it wasn't my vision. It, It wasn't what I thought I wanted to do. What I wanted to make happen. And um, so I actually kind of created all the material from Fertility Within Reach. It's all evidence-based. Like I did this IRB research with graduate students and, and we interviewed employers, legislators, insurance carriers and said, what information do you need to support infertility benefits, IVF benefits? And and they told us. And I said, what format do you want it in? And they told us. And so I created the policymaker's guide from that. Um, I created one-sheets after I did research with members of Congress and the Senate and state legislators and said, what is in a one-sheet paper that you receive that makes you want to keep it? Because they throw away most of them. So... What makes you want to keep it? What's the information you need to keep it? What's the information that motivates you to just toss it? Um, and, and what makes you want to have follow-up? They told us. I created something. I then shared it back with them and said, is this something you would that's keep? Great. And they were like, And yes. were you able so to do that
0: in a bi- bi- bipartisan fashion? That's great.
2: Yes. Yes, because what at least my philosophy is, because I was a communication major, you know your audience, right? So you figure out what's important to them. So Kate and I, um, our organizations teamed up and we co-wrote legislation. In New Hampshire. I don't know if she mentioned New Hampshire to you.
1: Yes, we did um, talk about New Hampshire. Yeah. Yay, and it passed. Yeah. I think we heard the podcast the day so, before
2: it passed, or it was like that afternoon or something.
1: Oh, He's, no, it was like the same day high and afterwards. Two hours later. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, it was, I, I mean, it was painstaking. We would spend 20 minutes discussing one word. And so it wasn't just Kate. It was a couple of attorneys, um, Chrissy Hanisco and Catherine Tucker, who are on the board for Resolve New England, and myself. I love them. We, Especially Catherine works closely with us. So yay, Catherine. <laughs> oh, yay. Right? It's brilliant women. We're all working together. We would literally, over one word, spend 20 minutes. It took us forever to write this bill. But then, what we do, and, and this was something that I that I said, this is kind of my philosophy as a communication major. You learn what's important to them. So the buzzwords in New Hampshire were retaining young families, right? Reducing, um, well, kind of my catchphrase it, that I say is, um, we want timely and appropriate healthcare to optimize. Safe pregnancies and healthy babies, and that—that's my experience, right? And this is what I want from people from that experience: timely and appropriate healthcare, safe pregnancies, and Did you, did you have babies. the numbers, or the and studies
0: showing that really? without healthcare covering fertility, people were making decisions like you where they're transferring four or seven. And then really the the costs are much, more, much higher when you're dealing with a child, a baby in the NICU or doing a reduction.
2: Yes, absolutely. And, and, the, the way things worked with the New Hampshire legislature was the Department of Insurance was saying, oh, well, we can do a cost analysis. It'll take us about eight weeks. Well, they have such a short legislative session. If it had gone to a cost analysis, it never would have passed this year. And since my background is more data-driven, cost that's analysis, what like to see, that sort of thing. Right. I, the bottom line, right. yeah. Right, so I felt this tremendous pressure that I had to convince them that they didn't need to do a cost analysis. That I had enough information, enough resources, enough proof for them that they didn't see it was necessary. And 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 I did it, um, which was great. But we all had something that we contributed. It was such a team effort, and getting different organizations to participate and different clinics to help get the word out. I mean, it was really, um, it, it is very stressful. Uh, I will always be honest with any advocate because there are highs and lows, you know, peaks and dips. Um, but you, as you do this more and more, and I've helped somebody advocate and get a law passed in Connecticut, and I helped you know, in Rhode Island, that you just stay steady, that you know that there are peaks and dips, just like with infertility treatments or, you know, family building, um, peaks and dips. And you just kind of ride steady, do your best, and and just know that in the end, one way or another, it will happen. You, you know, you just have no control of it. actually when it will happen. You can just do your best. So that's, that is just what we did. And we had this amazing lobbyist that we worked with. She was phenomenal. Um, and we, we, we got that's it done. Phenomenal. Um, so
1: beyond advocacy, it, what other things that I know fertility within reach has a lot of, uh, a lot of different sections to it. And I mean, I just, from my own personal, I'm going to pull this right on in here because part of it, insurance is one piece of the puzzle, but in a lot of states, obviously people don't have insurance yet still. And the biggest question I get on a day-to-day basis is how can we afford this? Uh, How, how do you help people? I mean, obviously you can't, you know, give people the money yourself and all those things, but what, how, how do you guide people through that? How can people afford this?
2: So I think people have to figure out what they're comfortable with and what their strengths are and what their abilities are. So on our website, we have multiple sections. We have a section on communicating under four patients, communicating with your legislator, communicating with your employer, communicating with your insurance carrier. You know, we have this information to help you uh, understand what's involved, how to do it, to motivate you to understand it's possible. Even our YouTube channel has um, interviews that I did with patients who did do advocating with their employer and with their intern, right? So people can see this is what worked for them or or this person and this company. Uh, Then the other thing is we have a a section on our website that's called financial assistance. And within that, there's a section all about grants, all about financing, all about fundraising. I have to say fundraising is not my thing. I am not great at fundraising, unfortunately, for the but sake you of are our organization. You. So you got to it's really hard.
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> right, exactly.
2: So, um, and then there are some people... Who would like to do financing, but maybe they don't don't have the credit score for it or the credit history to be able to do it. Um, Or there is somebody who doesn't want to advocate and they just want to try to do grant applications and they're figuring out which grant is better for them. What I recommend to people, because whether you're advocating at the state level, or filling out, you know, trying to decide if you're going to fill out a grant application. Doing things in Teams makes it so much easier. Uh, So whether it's just with your spouse, maybe one of you spends the time looking at which, narrowing down which grants you're going to apply for. But then the other one of you um, really has the skill to write a great grant application. So you kind of share the responsibilities because one person taking it all on can be a bit overwhelming. And and people might get burnt out because it is such an emotional time and a stressful time. So uh, whether if you're going to talk to your employer, I've seen it work where... Somebody just shares that they're interested in talking to HR about this, and then it just steamrolls. Oh, I need that. I need that. I met with an employer in New York City with uh, a woman who had attended one of our workshops, and what the employer decided was there were so many different needs from their employees that they offered benefits without any limitation because if they had created limitations, they would have been discriminating against someone in their company. But that awareness would not have come if so many people hadn't gathered together to, to have this conversation with HR, um, which, which I just thought was a great, um, it was a great, uh, a way to approach this. That's incredible. And, it's just the power I, of
1: one voice always making a big impact, right?
2: That's right. And you know what this makes a huge difference. I tell people laws get passed because a constituent asked a legislator to pass a bill, to to sponsor a bill. And all of New Hampshire actually started last summer because we had expressed an interest in working in New Hampshire and Katherine Tucker said, you know what, I, my senator, I can make a meeting with my senator. And we did. We sat down with her senator. The senator didn't sponsor the bill, but he was a champion for us. He was like, you know what, this is great. I like, I like what you've done. You know, maybe do this, maybe do that. Maybe consider talking to this person or that person and, and now it's a law because a constituent made a meeting with their legislator.
0: And how many states now have some kind of fertility coverage? Is it 17-ish?
2: 17 now, 17. Although they don't count um, Utah. Utah, their law is, um, and I think this passed maybe five years ago, Employers um, who allot $4,000 towards adoption coverage also need to make that available for infertility treatment. So it's a little bit, but, you know, it, it, it's a baby step, it seems like. So to go. Um, How's it so going? Too. And actually, I... I tend to focus on states where people contact me because this really can't be done without patient advocacy, right? The person asking to have a meeting with their legislator. It needs to happen that way. And I was approached by a young woman from Colorado. And I said, you know what? There is, here are some things that you can do And she's actually going to have a meeting about advocacy for infertility um, benefits in Colorado. And by the way, I actually refer to them and I'm glad the team in New Hampshire agreed to this. I call it fertility care, not infertility, because there are some people that I believe need to have coverage, even though they don't have a a diagnosis of infertility. So for example- it could be a, a single woman, mm-hmm. or it could be somebody with a genetic yeah. disorder, which right. leads to miscarriage with every pregnancy. So they really need to do, you know, IVF with PGD, or IVF with donor egg, or, do, do you know what I, or somebody who, well, you know, the, the list can go on and on, but I just call it fertility care. Um, it, so... The laws that we have, or the law that we have in New Hampshire, is really for me the um, the model going forward. Which it needs to be: um, the diagnosis of infertility is covered, fertility treatment is covered, and fertility preservation for those with a medical need, right?
0: Like, um, for example, having cancer at a young age and, and then, possibly losing right? your ability.
2: How, right. Or, or somebody who... Um, I have been working with a young woman who currently has a genetic disorder. She is in her late 20s. She is already experiencing a side effect, which is diminished ovarian reserve. But because she's single and not... Actively trying to become pregnant, she's not infertile. And so they are not covering for her to preserve her fertility, which is just so sad because she is going to become infertile. She is going to be eligible for infertility benefits or fertility treatment. So why not allow her the opportunity to do that in the future with her own genetic eggs? So, so this is one of the things I'm tell. passionate about. Can no, you No, I'm so excited to tell? continue to
0: watch you and all your tell advocacy. You. And um, I believe you're going to get all 33 oh, ex- the states okay. remaining. Um, but I also just want to make sure people who are listening so I- know what, aside from advocacy, which is so important, what a great resource you and your website are. Even just for patients, it has... Communicating with clinicians and really being like what you talk about of like interviewing the IVF doctor, not just being feeling helpless, like help me, but knowing what questions ask and to really supporting yourself and advocating for yourself on a, you know, on that individual level. Um, communicating with insurance providers. You talk, you have like a whole section on how to, how to appeal, you know, which can be a very complicated process. Um, communicate with employers. And then of course the communicating with legislators. So I just feel like it's such a good resource that people should really just, just start with fertility within reach.
2: Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. You know, the one the one finance, financial assistance that I didn't mention was shared risk programs. And what I would say about those, are, those are the types of programs where they say, the clinic says, well, if you pay for three IVF cycles and you don't become pregnant, we will give you a percentage back of your money. Or it will say, um, but if you do become pregnant on the first try, we keep the money um, and you have no, no other IVF cycles to follow. What I recommend to people is you must, must, must read the small print and never make that decision the day you find out your treatment plan because you are in such an emotional state that it is very difficult to focus on all of the finances. So after you meet with a doctor and you go and talk to the financial team, um, (laughs) then you can call us or take it home. Calm down, look through it all, and whatever doesn't make sense or whatever you have questions, you go back or you call and you get those questions clarified. But when you are trying to look at it and you're told it's going to cost this much money, your head's kind of spinning, right? So protect yourself. Go into it knowing I'm interested in these programs. I want to learn more, but I am not committing to anything today. And that's fine. The clinic is fine with that. So I just want to empower people to be able to not be not... I mean, we feel desperate. This is a desperate thing we want to have happen. But you don't have to act desperate, right? So take some time. Breathe. Breathe. Talk to people. Fantastic
1: advice. (laughs) Always. Everything. For everything in life, take some time and breathe, right?
2: (laughs) Take some time and breathe. and, And don't... You know, because what people ask me what should i do i don't have the answer because i'm not them but what i say is my advice is make a decision that you can live with that you won't go back and regret do your best and you know hopefully everything works out in the end but it there's no right or wrong answer it's it's a path, it's a journey, and sometimes there are dips and peaks, and um, you just try to stay steady, pace yourself, because it's you're in for the long haul if you want, you know. And oh, I want to say a quick note though, just on a side note, because I love, I love surrogacy, I love gestational carriers. Um, quick note. My, one of my best friends has cystic fibrosis and she had to have a double lung transplant and she really wanted to have kids. Unfortunately, with the anti-rejection medication, she couldn't. So she needed to have a surrogate. And I said, "Oh, find out if I can be your surrogate. And, and. I did offer, and the right? doctor was like, "Are you crazy? You're a mess." <laughs> she said, no. "You know, premature." But we're like, "No, she cannot. You know, she cannot." And not surrogate, but gestational carrier. Back then, they just said surrogate. Now it's gestational carrier. There is a definite difference, but for me, it is such a wonderful, beautiful gift, um, and. And that's one of the things I'm very proud about in New Hampshire is there is some coverage towards surrogacy gestational carrier. Um, and I, I am very thankful that that did not we did not lose that in the bill. We did great negotiations with the insurance carriers. and um, we didn't get everything we wanted. But we also didn't lose everything. So for the most part, I think um, it, it's very exciting. And I think every state really needs to go for it. Because by going for it and asking for it, you are finding opportunities to educate the public about it. And, and that needs to happen. It, it needs to be a conversation. That's awesome. Um, I'm feeling
0: inspired, Ellen. You ready? Yeah, I was thinking thinking the exact same word, like so inspiring. So thank you. (laughs) Thank Thank you, Davina, for all that that you do and sharing all that you've been through and how it's inspired to to help others. And I really think that your, your organization is such a great resource and you as well are doing such great work.
2: Thank you so much. Well, when I'm working in, in Colorado, I'll be uh, knocking on your desk. Um We have a guest
0: room
2: for you. We're ready. We look forward to it. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you so
1: much, Davina, for sharing your personal details and your personal story. That is something that a lot of people are afraid to talk about. And so your openness and honesty is really refreshing and we really, really appreciate it.
0: As well as all your advocacy effort. And on the topic of advocacy, for those who might be in Colorado or care passionately about Colorado or fertility generally, there is an event coming up September 19th. Um, So Colorado Fertility Advocates is a new organization bringing professionals and passionate individuals together, supporting options, um, safe and ethical options in family building. And they're having their first inaugural event on September 19th. And you can learn more about it at coloradofertilityadvocates.com. There's also a Facebook page.
1: And, and you'd even see Ellen and I there, you know, we, we'll, be <laughs> we'll be there, there in person in the flash. Hooray. So, um, but thank you as always to Chris at work at bird studios, Lexi, Amanda, Ashley. Uh, and I, I forget, and it's not cause I forget cause he's it, not important part, but also thank you. Huge. Thank you to Tyler, uh, who, who helps us so much with everything we do. So thank you to everybody. And we look forward to hearing from people soon.